Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. No, it's like this powder that you mix sugar with that's got artificial fruit flavorings. And I don't know why I try to explain this stuff to you, Gavin. Ass. The following podcast contains... Mother trucker! That hurt like a butt cheek on a stick! Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When your suicide punch is flavored with bargain basement Kool-Aid instead of the real thing, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 288. Pass me a bottle, Reverend Jones. It's part one of a two-parter on Jim Jones, where we talk about why you should never, ever go to church because you just might wind up dead in a jungle in Guyana. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Flavorade, who wants you to know we are totally cool with Kool-Aid catching the blame for this one. We at Flavorade know you have a choice when mixing concoctions of lethal poison and fruit-flavored powder, and we pride ourselves on being an affordable, if less tasty, alternative to the leading national brand. And if you want to call your death punch by the leading national brand name, that would be totally fine with us. It's hard enough competing with that giant anthropomorphic freak drink picture without having our name associated with the largest murder-suicide in modern history. So go ahead and say drink the Kool-Aid to associate things with blindly following narcissistic madmen bent on your destruction. And keep Flavor Aid's name out of it. This is a Channel 7 News Scene special report with our continuing coverage of the People's Temple story and the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan. Now with the latest details, Van Amberg and Marsha Brandwin. Good evening. Here's what's happening. We're interrupting our special broadcasting to bring you this special report, um, a news news break on the People's Temple mass suicides in Guyana and the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan. I would mention to you now, tonight's movie will run in its entirety immediately following this special report. I also have to warn you as we begin this special report that what you're about to see almost defies description, and some of you may not want to watch it. As soon as these pictures from Jonestown cleared our newsroom, everybody, even a lot of hardened news people, reacted in horror and disbelief. The word on everybody's lips was shades of Auschwitz. These are the first pictures out of Guyana on the incredible orgy of death that took place in the People's Temple Agricultural Mission at Jonestown. If you grew up in an evangelical church, you knew the power of the pastor, the righteousness of the reverend, and not to mention never to stay after choir practice with the reverend unless you wanted to have him witness to you in the baptismal tank. Oh, he did, because he's a dirty, dirty pervert. It's not fair of me to imply that every evangelical pastor is and was a pedophile. I mean, a lot of them were doing, you know, some laying on of hands with the various church wives. Oh, yes. Oh, God. Oh, yes. Oh, God. Oh, God. But all of them had enormous power over their congregation and a tremendous influence in the community. The bigger the church and the smaller the town, the more influence the pastor possessed. 
Which is why, even at the tender age of eight, I inherently understood how Reverend Jim Jones got his flock to chug cyanide lace fruit punch in a Guyana jungle November 18th, 1978. I personally had witnessed my own father, an ostensibly sane man who in day-to-day life was never particularly emotional or want to shout and cry, even if he had stepped on a Lego, roll on the ground and scream after a particularly raucous round of preaching during a revival. Feel the light of God inside you. If just a regular-ass preacher could get a crowd of Southern Baptists whose most emotional moments centered around a bad call by the refs during a University of Tennessee Vols football game to start ripping their clothes and shouting hallelujah like there was acid in the communion grape juice, then a really good preacher could get nearly a thousand people to kill themselves did not seem that all that far-fetched to me. I kept that shit to myself, mind you, because to imply that a godless monster like Jim Jones was anything like Pastor Ed would have been as big a blasphemy if I'd come right out and said that Jesus was basically Santa Claus for grown-ass adults. Excuse me, young man, what did you say? Um, um, that Jesus and Santa are the greatest thing ever, and I love them both and very, very much, and I can't wait to all die until we go to heaven to be with Jesus and Santa all year long. That's what I thought you said. The reason that I bring this up is, of course, November 18th marked the 42nd anniversary of the Jonestown Massacre, where Reverend Jim Jones killed 900-plus of his followers by forcing many and convincing the rest to drink cyanide-spiked Flavor-Aid. Inside selected packs of Flavor-Aid, Weilers, and Flavor-Ice. You literally cannot find a Flavor-Aid commercial other than this one little 2000 snippet that I was able to dig up, and I think that's because of Jonestown, which, oddly enough, Kool-Aid catches all the fucking blame for. Hey, Kool-Aid! Oh, yeah. You know the corporate execs of Kool-Aid have still got to be pissed about that to this day. I mean, they are synonymous with a bunch of mindless sheep so enamored by their charismatic leader that they're willing to ignore the very reality of existence even when they are constantly confronted that it has all been impossible for their god figure to do the things he says he can do as in fact an insane narcissist who feeds upon their empty-brained adulation and donations like a fucking vampire and nothing they could say or do will ever change the hardcore reality that he did not win the election. Dave? Dave! Sorry, I got a little up topic there, but you will see there's an awful lot of parallels, and honest to God, a good cauldron of Kool-Aid could do wonders for this fucking country. Dave! Dave, no! You're probably familiar with the broad strokes of Jonestown. Jim Jones takes his followers out to the jungles of South America to get them away from their families and him away from his legal troubles. And then when U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan comes down to visit along with several family, family members of the cultists, Jones orders Ryan to be killed along with everyone with him and then orchestrates what he called re- an act of revolutionary suicide, which sounds like what happens when a democratic socialist gets caught ordering something right off of Amazon, but is actually much, much worse. Yeah, I just want to say that you are a horrible, horrible person. By the time it was all over, 918 men, women, and children, including Jones, were dead and the largest mass murder-suicide in modern history. What you probably don't know is, is how they got there and how, if things had gone slightly different, Jim Jones might be remembered as a stalwart of the civil rights movement and the, prog- and the progressive ideals. What? Say, say that again. Oh, yeah. I mean, if things had turned just slightly different, Jim Jones would be mentioned in the same sentence as great civil rights activists in history. I mean, not Malcolm or Martin, but like the next tier down. You want to know what I mean? Do you? Then let's do a way back. Find your way back. 
our way back Texas to May 13th, 1931 in Crete, Indiana, when James Warren Jones is born to James Thurman Jones, a World War I veteran suffering from profound traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder and exposure to chemical weapons, and Lynetta Putnam, who was either a conniving gold digger with a penchant for lies or possibly a young woman ahead of her time who wanted to break out of the social constraints of small-town American poverty but never quite made it. Perhaps both, maybe neither. Because it was in the heart of the Depression, they grew up poor in Lynn, Indiana, in a shack without indoor plumbing. And young Jim, as he was known because his dad was known as Old Jim, even though he was not particularly old, just broken by war, was an odd child. He was a voracious reader who allegedly, allegedly, consumed the works by Stalin, Marx, Mao, and Gandhi throughout his childhood. He was said to be obsessed with religion. After a neighbor introduced him to church at a young age, his mother being openly non-religious and his father being more of into the, the state of pretty much anything, Jim started attending church. And after he w went through the first church, he began travel from church to church in a small town, taking in services, and soon began imitating and even emulating the affectations of the various pastors while performing services on on dead animals, some of which he allegedly helped into the afterlife. His childhood acquaintances branded him, quote, a really weird kid, unquote. There's little question that Jim was smart, perhaps even brilliant. He graduated with honors from high school in 1948 and started working as an orderly for a hospital while earning money to go to college. Here we first start to see something in young Jim that would form a very large part of his persona. Jim was very good with the elderly. And whereas most people his age disliked working with the aged, finding them difficult, and you know. And it smells like old people. He developed a reputation for patience, compassion, and genuine caring for the patients in his wards. He happy, happily did the dirtiest jobs and was considered a genuine asset to the hospital. He also attracted the attention of a young nurse by the name of Marceline Baldwin from a prominent Indiana family, and the two fell in love. I am. I'm happy for them. Oh, don't be. Marceline would die at Jonestown along with him and most of their kids. One of the things that attracted Marceline to Jim was his apparent deep religious faith. And Jim told Marceline that he wanted to head his own church someday. He began attending Indiana University Bloomington in 1949 as he needed a degree to be ordained. Things seemed to be progressing along nicely until 1951 when Jim, pissed off at the McCarthy hearings, began attending the meetings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. Oh, yeah, pod friends. Jim lived and died an ardent and avowed communist atheist. How does that even work? For Jim, it worked out pretty well. Jones said he asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? My thought was, infiltrate the church. Quoting here from Jim Jones' Wikipedia page, quote, Jones was surprised when the Methodist district superintendent helped him get a start in the church, even though he knew Jones to be a communist. In 1952, he became a student pastor at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church, but later claimed he left the church because its leaders forbade him from integrating blacks into his congregation. Around this time, Jones witnessed a faith healing service at a Seventh-day Adventist church. He observed that it attracted people and their money, and he concluded that he could accomplish his social goals with financial resources from such services, unquote. So... We have young Jim Jones in his mid-twenties, a fervent communist in a time and place where this should have made him a pariah in the community, a target of the feds and local cops. And what the fuck does he do? He steps right into the middle of the civil rights movement. He did... what? After splitting with the Methodist Church and spending a few years on the revival circuit, honing his arts and healings and learning the ways of the evangelical, Jim Jones started his own church 
and it was centered around integration and civil rights. The New York Times reported that in 1953, quote, declaring that he was outraged at what he perceived as racial discrimination in his white congregation, Mr. Jones established his own church and pointedly opened it to all ethnic groups. To raise money, he imported monkeys and sold them door-to-door as pets, unquote. This is getting really weird. Oh, it's only going to get weirder, but yes, Jim Jones literally made money by knocking on people's doors and asking them if they were interested in buying a monkey, presumably way before the Beatles even thought of it. What was even stranger than that was that Jim Jones was really good at doing the desegregation things. He may not have single-handedly desegregated Indianapolis, but he did most of it. Quote, In 1960, Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell appointed Jones director of the local Human Rights Commission. Finding new outlets for his views on local radio and television programs, the mayor and other commissioners asked him, Jones, to curtail his public actions, but he resisted. He was wildly cheered at a meeting of the NAACP and Urban League when he yelled for his audience to be more militant and then climaxed with, let my people go. During this time, Jones also helped to racially integrate churches, restaurants, the telephone company, the Indianapolis Police Department, a theater, an amusement park, and the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. Swastikas were painted on the homes of two black families, and Jones walked through the neighborhood comforting local black people and counseling white families not to move. He set up sting operations to catch restaurants refusing to serve black customers and wrote to the American Nazi leaders, passing their responses to the media. He was accidentally placed in the black ward of a hospital after a collapse in 1961, but he refused to be moved. He began to make the beds and empty the bedpans of black patients. Political pressures resulting from Jones's actions caused hospital officials to desegregate the wards, unquote. Nothing in any of the research I've done on Jim Jones, and I've actually done quite a bit because I'm fascinated by his whole story, makes me think that any of his work in civil rights in the early days was in any way disingenuous or self-serving. He could have done all he set out to do by taking the easy path, sticking to white folks who, let's be honest, had more money and influence. That was something Jim Jones definitely craved, like Don Jr. craves another bump of cocaine. Dave. Sorry. I honestly believe that Jim Jones at the time truly believed in what he was doing from a genuine moral principle. He and Marceline demonstrated this kind of thing by adopting children of other races, which wasn't done in the 50s and early 60s. They called them their rainbow family, culminating in being the first white family to adopt a black child in Indiana in 1961. And yeah... He did risk genuine threats to his life and family because then as now, fucking racist shitbags do what racist shitbags are going to do. The accomplishments of Jim Jones in Indianapolis are nothing short of remarkable by any context. He deftly and peacefully promoted integration across the city by using his influence and the economic power of his expanding congregation. Instead of protests and pickets, Jones would, would approach reluctant business owners and offer to bring in people as customers to that business in exchange for allowing black folks to patronize said business regularly. Jones's power of persuasion moved the citizens to accept quick and largely painless change in their city. It also gained Jones a large African-American following from his church, which would remain him with him until the very end in Guyana. What Jones managed to do was unheard of at the time and would be remarkable even today. All the while, 
it disguised a much side, a darker side of the church and Jim Jones. Because for all of his good work, Jim Jones was a fraud, a con artist, and a religious huckster of the first degree, and he was very, very good at doing so. Your hand is even now. You've got rheumatoid arthritis on top of it. What's on your hand? Your hand's now, isn't it? Hold it out there. Hold it out there. Straighten it. Move it. Bend it fast. That's it. That's it. Now bend it. Now make a fist out of it. Make a fist out of it. Hold your hand up. Hold it up. Sister, if I could help you there, you're unable to walk, unable to stand. I say you can stand. I say you can stand. Stand up. Now you're on your feet. No, sister, let loose, let loose. Sister, straighten the shoulder. Straighten up. Straighten the back. I command it. According to my work, command you leave. Jones used the techniques and tropes of the traveling evangelist and picked, that he picked up on his years in the revival circuits, including the techniques of the fake-ass faith healers, like cold reeds, hot reeds, and audience plants. The woman in the wheelchair that he ostensibly made walk in that clip was a plant in the audience. They actually would practice faith healings when they shoved rotten chicken guts in people's mouths and made them spit them out and called it curing cancer. He did this because he knew it would bring people in. It would grab the gullible and bend them to his will and vision and his version of religion. He knew this because he saw it work Sunday after Sunday all across the country. And Jim Jones wanted him some of that sweet old time religion. But it wouldn't be God of the Bible at the center of Jim Jones's faith. No, 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 no. That would be Karl Marx. It isn't hard to pin down where the wheels came off Jim Jones's roller skates. It happened in January 1962, while Jim was sitting on the shitter perusing a copy of Esquire magazine. But I read an Esquire magazine. Jim had long used the threat of nuclear war as a bogeyman in his sermons, but this wasn't unusual for the 1950s and early 60s. So whilst taking a massive dump, Jim read an article about the best places to survive a nuclear holocaust. The following are the exact words that sent Jim Jones in search of a new home for his flock. From Esquire magazine, January 1962, quote, If you really want to be safe from atomic destruction, here's the most up-to-date survival surveys. A guide to the few remaining places on this earth where human life would not be destroyed. Belo Horizonte, Brazil, a town of 600,000, is a bustling, progressive third city of the South American country, most likely to blaze a new economic trail. 
Up from the coast, a plus on safety, Belo Horizonte is a garden spot exporting truck and dairy products that could easily feed newcomers and it could develop light industries from the surrounding mineral resources to employ them. It is a moderate and semi-tropical climate and was a health resort in the days when doctors recommended a high dry climate for tuberculosis. Laid out at the turn of the century as the capital of the rich state of Minas Gerais, the General Mines, Belo Horizonte was the first city after Brasilia and the most successful of Brazil's synthetic cities. It has television, the amenities of modern life, and a pulse which charms North Americans who hope for an industrial society that can support affluence without fits of Calvinist guilt." Unquote. So Jim backed up his socialist rainbow family and headed down to Brazil on a trip that was part missionary zeal for new converts and part scoping out a new home for his people when the bombs fell. Jones, who could not speak Portuguese and was being very careful to hide his communism in Brazil, rapidly learned the evangelical missionary market in Brazil was saturated and was never quite able to make any progress in conversion. And to top that off, Brazil was not the low-budget paradise he was seeking to relocate the congregation to. To make things worse... He received word from home that his church was on the verge of splintering apart without him there to lead it, with factions breaking off to follow associate pastors. And, and this was the one thing Jim Jones could not or would not ever tolerate. You did not leave Jim Jones or Jim Jones's church, and you definitely didn't take his followers with you if you tried. His paranoia kicked into high gear as he left Brazil after a year. Arriving back in Indiana, angry, afraid of losing his congregation, full of lies about what happened in Brazil, he set about taking back control of his church with a heavier hand than he used in putting it together. The inner circle of Jones's church saw Jim Jones angry. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. He clamped down on dissent and began working to stabilize the church's finances, which had fallen apart while he was in Brazil. This is largely because Jim Jones was also something of a genius at organizing and managing money, though it was primarily Marceline who was the best at this. Between the two of them, they had made the church quite liquid, and while they were gone, that fell apart entirely. So Jones put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The problem was, Indiana was tapped out. Everyone who could be converted was converted, and Jones had to find a new source of income and people willing to listen to his growing doctrine of apostolic socialism, which found a very limited audience in the Midwest. So, cooking up fears with a prediction of a nuclear attack, Jones convinced to cajole a large portion of his church to pack up and move with him to California, and so 140 of them went with Jim, over half of them black, and moved to Redwood Valley, California in 1965. All of this was chapter one of the Jim Jones story, because in California, he would also do some amazing things and be a genuine force for good in the community. He pulled off a repeat of finding a way to smoothly integrate a large group of religious nuts, half of whom were black, into a small California town, and that was just the beginning of Jim Jones in California, and that's where we'll pick up next week. Look, I got no intention of going into the actual events of the mass murder, because I'm focused on the story that led up to that and how this strange, strange man managed to amass a following of diverse people from all walks of life and convinced them to take up a faith largely centered around Marxist ideology and somehow keep that down on the down low and amass genuine political, social and social influence in California to the point that his endorsement was sought by politicians like San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and various state politicians. He further 
even met with people like Vice President Walter Mondale and First Lady Rosalind Carter during his time as a California power broker. From Wikipedia again, quote, In September 1976, California Assemblyman Willie Brown served as a master of ceremonies at a large testimonial dinner for Jones attended by Governor Jerry Brown and Lieutenant Governor Mervyn DeMolly. And at that dinner, Brown's touted Jones as what you should see every day when you look in the mirror and said he was a combination of Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Mao Zedong, unquote. All the while, Jones was growing more and more emotionally unstable and more and more stridently, not Marxist anymore, full-blown Stalinist communist. But again, that's next week. So I want to close out this week talking for a minute on how Jim Jones was able to convince people that he was a man of faith, a voice for God. And how he could get God-fearing black women who know them some preaching when they hear it to go along with him as he formed the core of the Indianapolis church and the nucleus of the People's Temple in California. How the hell was he able to go from this... Is there someone near the house? Is there such a name as house? House? Tell him. Tell him house. Yes, I think that probably... I just heard house. I, I refer to a church as house. Your name is house? Yes. Do you have any white boots? With yes. white fuzz around the top? Yes. I see them that you'd be wearing them in the wintertime. Yes. With a green coat? Yes. This will save you by pinning these in both boots and on your green coat. This will save you a terrible fall that would have broken both of your hips. Thank you, Jesus. And right now, spirit. To this in just a few short years. Well, that's a very honest opinion. How can you... Uh, know what's truth in the Bible. It's not that simple uh, unless your judgment is based upon a very high evolutionary understanding. If you have a deep refinement in your superego, then you could trust your judgment of the Bible. First, it would have to be, this would be required. You would have to be socialistic to be able to trust the Bible. Well, I'll explain that. I know how he did it because I grew up in it. I saw it every Sunday for the first 10 or 12 years of my life. How the preacher, using slow building cadences and rhythms and sonorous repetition, can move a crowd. How the preacher expends their emotional energy, crying, shouting, praising, and cajoling a crowd into joining in to his emotional release. How the music and the prayers all cause a collective ecstasy in the crowd and how that crowd feeds on its own catharsis to create a mass hysterical reaction amongst the congregation, all tightly focused through the lens of a few nonsensical Bible verses and the charisma of the man behind the altar. I watched my grandfather do it. I watched my father do it. And I could do it myself if I wanted to. Because the power is in me, brothers and sisters. It comes from God, and it comes from my father and his father before him on down into me. And I speak to you today about the Lord 
and his blessings on you only if you believe. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 23, 11, those who know his truth, I am speaking to you now, those who know his truth will rise up and walk with his shepherd, walk with me to know his love because he is here with you right now, brothers and sisters. His love is on you. It is in you. And he wants to break free. His love wants to shout amen. Can I hear an amen that is right? Hallelujah. Jesus is here with me now. And he wants you to come forward now. He wants you to come up. He wants you to kneel down before this altar. And say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, take my sins. Lord, lift me up in thine heavenly glory so that I might take his blessings and your blessings and love for all eternity. You will come. You will kneel down before him and take up this blessing I am offering you right now or lose the kingdom forever. Amen. 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 I mean, it's not hard. That's how Jim Jones was able to convince people primed by a lifetime of religious indoctrination to believe in him. Because it isn't the Bible or God, it's the pastor. Always has been, always will be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is it for this week's show. I know you're going to come back here next week, brothers and sisters, to our fellowship so we can reveal to you the path that Brother Jim took in California. We feel it in our hearts that you will because you know in yours that I am the way and the light to your understanding to this historical event combined with tasteless jokes about dicks and poo. Praise Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need you to witness. We need you to go out amongst the population. We need you to spread the gospel of this show wherever you go so that you can give the good news that is this low-rated podcast to everyone in the land. Rate us, review us, subscribe your friends to us all so that they may know the love of a drunk podcast host in their lives. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Yes! <laughs> I don't know what you come to do, but I come to praise name. Oh, Lord, I know that we need you to reach deep now. Oh, the Lord knows. The Lord knows that we need you to reach deep now. We need you to help keep this ministry going, to keep us doing the work and spreading the word so as we pass the digital offering plate around, brothers and sisters, won't you find it in your hearts to give as much as you can. Find it in your hearts to find us at patreon.com slash podcast, and you will receive back in the prosperity our Lord promises to all who give from us in the form of swag and Early episodes without advertising. Oh, I know. 
I know, brothers and sisters, that it's hard this time. It's hard this time of year. The holidays are coming up. But the Lord wants you to give unto us so that we may give back unto you. Follow all of our sermons on the Twitter at the Hell underscore podcast and the show name on Facebook where they bring the light of Jesus into your life. And we can bring the light of Jesus into your life with all of our episodes right there at whatthehellpodcast.com. So for me, Pastor Dave, lift me up, oh Lord, Bledsoe. Bacon producer, lay down your burdens on me, Lord Gavin, and all the fictional members of our congregation. We want to say, believe in me, because I don't believe in anything. And pass me a bottle, Reverend Jones. We'll see you all in fellowship next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.